Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. You are listening to DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, 1770 Euclid Street, Northwest Washington, DC. This episode is part of All Things Local, where we highlight DC history, culture, and communities, and Washingtonians who have made an impact on our city. I'm your host, Ray Barker, an archivist in the Special Collections Department at the MLK Library. Today, our guest, our special guest, is poet and jazz archivist at UDC with the Felix E. Grant Jazz Archives. To uh, Ruben Jackson. Today we discuss Ruben's life as a writer. We discuss Old DC and the celebrated defunct arts venue that's dear to my heart, DC Space. Uh, later, Ruben's going to read from his latest collection, Scattered Clouds. So, welcome, Ruben. Thank you, Ray. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Um, so, I really wanted to start by talking about how I first met you. And it was. Uh, this is going to be all about me. No. Okay, good. Oh, good night. Don't go. <laughs> um, and I'll wake you up when it's no, good. No, no, don't kidding. Yeah. But so basically I was doing an oral history project for the library about D.C. space. Right. And uh, you took the metro. You met me at, at the metro and you start walking up the Metropolitan Branch Trail in Eckington uh, where I work sometimes. And as you were walking, you said that you were seeing like old D.C. in front of you and what used to be there. And um, I remember that, yeah. And I just was wondering if you could talk about that notion. I thought we would start pretty deep here and then sure, paddle yeah. back out. Can we? I mean, we were talking about that a little bit ago. We could we could get metaphorical and then literal and all that. Let's stuff. do that. But uh, yeah, like that disorientation or like I remember how- that day very well. What I was talking about because the weather had started to change. It was starting to get warmer, more spring-like, and what I could see on the trail was. There's something about, um, it's like the smell of the air here during like spring and summer. And looking off to the left, there were row houses, which, you know, I grew up in a row house in Northwest, uh, interspersed with you know, newer buildings, luxury buildings, and just walking north of Noma. So it's that interesting uh, and sometimes baffling uh, meshing of what was, that which raised me you know, community which raised me and uh, that which is, I'd say, rapidly becoming the norm. So that's that's what I meant. Uh, I mean, I used to tell people and still tell people, they said, where are you, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from old black D.C. And because my hair is white, they may think I'm talking about 1847 or something. But it, that's what I saw and was experiencing on the way to talking a bit about, you know, the past. Yeah, well, good. And then... Um we could talk about it. I, we were meeting initially to discuss DC space right. and I know we're jumping way ahead in terms of our chronology, but I, it, as I said in the intro, it's DC space is something I think about and talk about and I wasn't here for it and mm-hmm. I give presentations about it and I'm writing an article about that place. But can you tell us and tell me how did your sort of writing evolve into getting you to present and, and read there in that group of readers and writers. Can you talk briefly about that? Oh, of course. Yeah, I um, I graduated from Goddard College in Vermont in December of 1978. I came back to D.C. and 
as I told you before we began this uh, conversation, I was stubborn about writing in terms of wanting to continue it. My father was the family pragmatist who said, be careful, son, you won't be able to get a job. But I wanted to write, and I needed to try and find, it's like a cliche, but it's sincere, a, a community of writers. So literally, um, I kind of gussied up <laughs> the courage to go to a, a reading at DC Space. This was like May 1979, and they had an open mic component, which... I think at the time it was pretty rare. It's more commonplace now. So you have like the headliners and then I think there was like a sign up. So then I got up on stage and said, you know, whatever the poem. I think it was a poem about the saxophone. And do you mind me asking, are you in your mid-20s around now? Where are we? Yeah, early, like 22, 23, you know. But I read this piece about the saxophonist Albert Eiler. And, you know, it wasn't one of those instant, so now I'll do this. But I think it did help me break some degree of ice Uh, well just in terms of sharing stuff but also looking around and saying well there are other people out here who are writing as well which you know intellectually but then it's another thing to uh what's that other overused term put your toe in the water the iambic waters i guess you could say and then i mean i you know i obsess about that place but uh and some of the presentations i find footage of the some of the readings there, and it just seemed, uh, there was just 12 years later, I think, than from the time period you're talking about, but it just felt like a very supportive environment, and again, not very pretentious. I would say that's true. I mean, it was, an, especially after I became, like I started working for the Smithsonian, and so you have, you know, it's a rich life, but it's at governmental Washington, and then maybe the same night, like it's a Tuesday, Tuesday night you'd go to a reading or you'd take part in a reading. It was, I needed the outlet and um, I also needed that community. So it, it, it worked um, It worked out well. And of course, I'm still friends with a lot of people who were, you know, I think integral parts of, of, uh, of DC space. Right. Um, and then I was going to mention, I, you and... Um Brian Gilmore read at Politics and Prose, and we're going to read excerpts from your your book, uh, Shattered Clouds, uh, but you were there reading with him in November of last year on a Sunday, right? Uh, and I know he's in, uh, in Michigan, but um, just to tee that up, that we're going to dive into that book later and talk a little bit about that, mm-hmm. but can we go back now about growing up in D.C.? Like, what, where does your, like, where do your memories Way back. Let's go. Yeah, right. Let's get in the time machine and go back. 1847. No, we moved to D.C. in August of 1958. Um, I was born in Augusta, Georgia, and my mom was a school teacher. She was a language arts specialist with D.C. public schools. She got a job offer here, so the four of us, my father, my older brother, my mom, of course, and myself, came to D.C., and initially we settled in... um, Columbia Heights, we were, my parents were renting like the upstairs of a brownstone until they found the house and purchased it. So I, my early memories are moving into, uh, it's Brightwood, I'm thinking of neighborhoods, you know, and sitting on the stoop watching the neighborhood change because white flight was taking place. So we moved into a neighborhood which was, it was predominantly white at one point and then my friends and I or black friends, we call it like the weekend of moving vans because we'd have, like, you have white playmates, but then 
every weekend someone else would move. So you're in the midst of that. And, um, you know, I would just, I was being a kid watching cartoons. I did, I knew early on that I loved language. I loved music. And so I guess (laughs) I was multitasking. Like you're being a kid, you're watching whatever's on TV. And you're also... You know, I'm thinking about the sound of language, as I, as we said before, again, you know, before the, this conversation began, listening to the old AM DJs and the way in which language could um, expand, you could speed it up, slow it down, uh, how you could develop ideas, which I also heard growing up in church here. But um, I say this lovingly, I think I was a weird kid, you know, I, I had a big curiosity, which my parents supported and I cannot thank them enough. They're not here now, but I I could never thank them enough for uh, allowing me to read a great deal. Same for my brother uh, and not say, Ruben, you shouldn't be asking questions about the Bold Story Ballet because you're a kid. And And then like a curiosity about the arts or about the world in general? Or how would you I'd say all the above. Like if you're taking the SAT exam, it's like if C is all the above. So it's like the world in general, because you also have to think about what's going on in the community, again, with the shift in demographics, what's going on in the country with the civil rights movement ramping up. And then things like, you know, I would ask my father questions like, well, you know, why do the stars sort of hang out in a certain part of the sky? You know, it's kind of, and I'm thinking, oh, is he going to laugh at me? But he would answer. So it was just, um, just a big, actually a big curiosity. Yeah. Big and then when did writing <clears throat> I guess you start excuse me writing poetry or when I ask you about when did you start writing what would you answer them what kind of writing and what did, what did it look like oh my gosh I, you know I have distinct memories of writing of course in and even in grade school where I would try and I remember doing a finger painting in second grade and I, I wrote some lines next to the what I said was, I said, well, this is the Danube River. And because I loved Johann Strauss, you know, the, the younger, the Waltz King, the Blue Danube and all that stuff. And I wrote something like, you know, summer by the Danube. I'm waiting to meet Johann Strauss for a cup of coffee or something like that. You know, pretty like, romantic. So, oh, yeah. In I'll, a sense, you know what I mean? No, Very no, sort of. I was going to say, in addition to my curiosity and the saxophonist Archie Shep once said, um, I passed through the insipid panorama of Americana with an enormous romanticism. It has never left me. But I was, yeah, that's me. I was, and it's gotten worse, or, or better. It's <laughs> but still present and still strong. Yeah, yeah, but I have positive attributes as well. And then somewhere in here, the poetry took over and became a, more of a legit, like I was referring to earlier about DC Space and stuff, but, sure. um, but poetry, I think you must have like locked into that, or... Or not necessarily. I mean, you know, it, it began in high school. My 10th grade homeroom teacher was editor of our school newspaper. Talk about defunct mediums almost. And one Friday she came up to me and said, we need a poem for the next edition of the paper. Bring one in on Monday. So I assumed she meant go to the library and get like, I don't know, a Gwendolyn Brooks or something. So I said, well, who do you like? And she says, no, you have to write it. And I thought, why is she doing this to me? It's Friday. So I, I said to myself, write 
the worst poem you can think of. Like a real, I wrote this real mawkish poem about a classmate who had one of those perfect, like flawless afros. And, and uh, it was, you know, pretty nutra-sweet laden. It's like, oh to, to the sister with the most perfect afro, and blah, blah, blah. So I turned it in thinking, I'm off the hook. She's going to hate this. And my teacher said, this is wonderful. You're a staff poet. I need a poem every month. Now, I don't know what inspired her to ask me to, to do this, but suddenly I had an assignment. And eventually I found that I liked doing it, you know, and so I'd go to the library, DC, DC Public, the Georgetown branch, and I would just knock all the, the 811s, the Dewey Decimal Number for Poetry, I'd knock them all off the shelf and go home like this. I had books, you know, 80 books under each arm. And you just read, you start reading everybody. You don't necessarily know what they're talking about, but you have like maybe Langston Hughes in this hand. You've got Keats or Shelley in this hand. And I started looking at the thesaurus and giving myself assignments. So I got hooked, you know, and, and um, I never, I haven't gotten over it yet. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, uh, not to over-intellectualize, but I guess at that point you're sort of like relating or putting yourself in this community of uh, writers, I guess, is that, or did you recognize yourself as a poet or it's too soon to say that? Oh, much, much too soon. I didn't call myself a poet until October, 2017. You know, I always just said I'm an erstwhile writer and I was afraid to say that I was a poet because it, for me, it meant something that I didn't consider myself worthy of you know like the old groucho marx joke you know, could, would you join a, a club that would let you in as a member but um i knew i loved it i loved trying to figure things out by way of you know the word as, as they say in church and that still that still drives me that in the you know aforementioned curiosity it's like why why is this or you see, you know, a mountain or whatever it happens to be, and you want to, um, like Ezra Pound said, make it new, you know, coming out of your view of things. And then when did you start sharing it in terms of something that was more creative and something that was more you, less of an assignment for this teacher? College. Yeah. Yeah, college, right. And then, yeah. so you let, did you go, where, when did you leave D.C., and you, where did you go? I went to um, Goddard College, which still exists. It's in... Central Vermont, Plainfield, Vermont, and uh, I started February 1975, you know, and, and I had, that fall, my first poem was published. My mother, you know, was a teacher, she had, one of her parents said, oh, Ruben's going to Goddard. There's a guy I know who publishes a weekly newspaper in Plainfield where Goddard's located, and, you know, send him some poems. So my first poem was um, it was like an elegy for the writer Jack Kerouac. So it was published in Plainfield, Vermont had a newspaper called The Country Journal. That was my first published poem. And once I started Goddard, you know, I took poetry workshops and all that, and we would we'd do informal readings in the dorm lounge, but then they also had campus readings, and I would, you know, it's like you're 18 years old, and uh, it's slightly post high school yearbook verse but you know, <laughs> I see even my failures were earnest you know? <laughs> so that's where that's where I really kind of it's like dancing at a party and 
you sort of get off the wall and say, oh, maybe maybe I can get on the floor and you know move around a little bit. So that's what I was trying to do with, with language. Yeah, and I guess in that context, I, I imagine, you know, people are young, excited, doing things creative, creatively. Oh, yeah. Sort of stimulating each other. The parents aren't looking over your shoulder telling you to go to bed by midnight. Right. So there, there's a lot of that. Your boys aren't laughing at you, you know, growing up here because it's like, I think a lot of my work, and it, it comes through to some degree in the, the poetry, was trying to find a place of acceptance for things I, I felt my peers wouldn't think was too cool. Like, you know, the things I loved early. So language, certainly music, like, and with music, like ballet, opera. I loved, I fell in love with this stuff. And when something kind of taps you on the shoulder, you really, you have no choice. But how do you handle all those loves, I'll put it like that, and hang out with your friends and have some degree of like, fellowship or kinship with peers? So I started coordinating things off. And what I've been working on, and I know this is jumping a bit chronologically as well, but consolidating. So I'm like one, you know, consolidated Reuben. Sounds like a bad business. Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the billboard on the Yeah, there you go. Right. Right. <laughs> but I get to what you're saying, some kind of compartmentalization. And you could still have these loves for these things in this section. But over here, you're still hanging out with your friends and maybe right. talking about something else and not even bringing up your, right. your those loves. Because, see, college, you could go... Like, if we were reading a Mill Zola novel, I could read with my friends and weep over certain passages and all. But I was 13 miles, 13 miles, 13 hours from D.C., and I had space to do it. I had a, an outlet for that side of, of myself, and I needed it. You know, it's also when... I started radio, as I had mentioned before, because I had this opportunity uh, to sit in with a friend who had a show. And the last hour, she said, oh, you should just take over the mic. I'll run the board. And boom, it's one of these things you don't expect. And then it happens and you think, hmm, this is good, you know. So I'm, I'm thankful for, well, I'm thankful for being able to look more concretely at everything that's been on the path but to have had the opportunity to you know begin to write quote I guess you could say more seriously or as as seriously as an undergrad does and to learn more writers to make mistakes you know it's all as as Biggie would say it's all good it's all good baby baby and you were uh were you playing music then too yes yeah and what were you playing i don't know how the heck i did all this at once yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to put it together i played guitar with um we had a couple of informal ensembles on campus is this rock or jazz or what uh both both and i studied i took some independent studies one in conducting one uh orchestration i was I was in love. I was going for, you know, the whole nine yards. And it was because you start to learn a bit and then you want to learn more and then you want to learn more and more. But I I was doing that, doing some writing. I had a part time job one semester at a country and western station in Vermont. A guy heard me. He was passing by campus, which is pretty miraculous because at that time, Goddard Station was it was a 10-watt station, so you'd go, like, around the curve, and the signal would go, like, disappear like Amelia Earhart. Right, you know? yeah. <laughs> and, yep. But he called this 
school and he got the dorm phone number and said, would you like a weekend job? Well, you're an undergraduate. Yeah, you want a weekend job because, A, you get a little extra money. And So he uh, was driving by, heard something about, something about you, he and heard he heard me. something. He said, he said, I think you're one of the like, best radio people in this region. Do you want a job? He said, it's a country and western station, and we've got a, a playlist, but uh, if you want it, it's yours. And I, you know, my arm was twisted. So that was another experience, of course, because in your you're outside of campus and you're on the air, you know, in the the wider world, so to speak. And it's, um, but again, it, it's like the same skills where you're, it's language. And of course, if you're writing for radio, it's being terse, being descriptive, which I think also is like a hallmark of poetry. This is all kind of in hindsight, but I was just so happy to have contact with something it's like a new love and you get to express it and you have as what my mother used to call walking around money as a college student i think you know huge then and huge now <laughs> and ruben do you have a sense of uh what he heard in you do, what what stood out <sighs> hmm. maybe a pretty successful meshing to use that term again of my influences, you know, the, and it's hard for me to evaluate that more specifically. He just said, well, I think you sound good on the air. You're believable. I remember him saying that. And, and, uh, he said, I just, I think you'll be really good. No, no matter what you do, if someone says that to you, that's enough. Yeah. As a, as a kid say, how cool is that? And that's all you need. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Excuse me. Do you want to talk a little bit about the racial sort of relationships there in Vermont? I mean, so <laughs> I don't even know how to put this. And I'm hoping to mm-hmm. lead into a poem from Scattered Clouds. Okay. We're talking to Reuben Jackson here. And I didn't know if there's a poem that we could pull from that comments or is... In, sure. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Or, no, no. It provides some kind of framework or context for this, uh, your time in, in Vermont. I guess you spent the next four years there. Well, I, I went, yeah, yeah. In my family... If I didn't graduate from there, I was graduating from somewhere. It, in our house, college was not an if, it was a where. But Goddard was, um, it was the right place for me. And It's like a small college? Is it yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, in the 70s, I mean, Vermont remained, Vermont is the second whitest state in the country. Okay. Uh, in the 70s, there are more, and I use that term, it's, it's relative, there are more people of color in the state now but in the 70s you could go oh weeks maybe months without seeing people of color and you know my joke was always and it's not it's a joke but it's true if mm-hmm. i saw like two black people in montpelier the state capital i would call all my relatives like i saw two black people so you you know like you'd walk in a store or maybe you'd walk in a, a hotel like this People wouldn't bother you necessarily, but they would all stare. They would, they might turn. It, it, it would seem simultaneously and just kind of go, wow, like, why? Look at that. There's a black person. And it's not even, and if I can say that, it's not even with disdain or anything, more just sort of an observation of surprise or of, like, it strangeness? Or? Both, I think, in some cases. Because what can happen if you're cloistered, uh, your exposure is limited and... If the only say as a black American male, 
if the only archetypes you see on television are either NBA or NFL stars or somebody who got picked up on the interstate for speeding with drugs in his car. That's, that's what you know. So I was the unknown. Plus, I think coming from an urban area, Vermont was much more, what, sociologically remote at that time. So yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a poem. It's kind of humorous in, uh, in Scattered Clouds about that like, encountering can we read? Can we? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you mind? I'll have to. It's called April 1975. And then I marked some to read a little later. Okay, uh, great. The one about you and Ringo Starr. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still one of my favorite drummers. Okay. Oh, it is on. Of course, it's going to take We're me. scanning the table of contents here. It's page 90. Like the old show Playhouse 90. Okay. Thanks, Brendan. April 1975. Should my black flatlander eyes lock on the other brother in the general store? The first brother I've seen since what seems like I can't count that high. Do I pretend I don't see other people pretending not to see us? Two brothers buying Triscuits and peanut butter, respectively, is revolution on a Sunday afternoon. So this took place in a, a general store maybe three miles from campus, and it just didn't happen every day. You know, you can walk in any store around here, CVS or Safeway or wherever. Well, seeing, you know, other people of color is the norm, but that was a big deal. And I, I could tell the proprietor was, uh, what do they say in Britain, like gobsmacked. And I was happy to see this gentleman because I hadn't seen myself in a while. Those kinds of things happened um, on on the regular, as they say. At the same time, you know, I was conscious of, I'm more conscious of it now, some some of the mayhem I saw and experienced growing up here. Some of my friends got involved. Now, these are not the same kind of gangs you think about now. It's like fist, fist fight gangs, I call them. But I was, I was away from that. And I knew that I wanted to be away from it. But you, this is not something you articulated because people might say, oh, you think you're better than we are because you don't want to be around all this. So, yeah, there's that isolation and... It's also a beautiful place, so I needed, I was doing the best I could to try and embrace the things I love, like language and music, and um, calm myself down. Because it, you know, you're a kid, you have a lot of jobs. Like you're, you're growing up, you're trying to figure out who the heck you are. Sometimes I come home from the movie theater. I had like two or three different ways to figure out how to get home. And we're in D.C. now? Yeah, yeah, because people try to take your money. It's a lot to handle, and I I think... um, So you're on foot working at the movie theater in high school? Is that what you're saying? And you're coming home? Well, yeah, what I'm trying to express here is just I'm carrying all these things, and it all has to go somewhere. So I thought, well, plus the romanticism we mentioned, you know. Well, you know, you go someplace, it looks like a some big pastoral painting come to life or Norman Rockwell canvas come to life. And I'm also learning 
more about music and about writing. And I get to breathe a little bit, you know. Like, I'd come home in the summer and my friends would say, how was school? I'd say, well, it's all right. Well, that wasn't true. I mean, my heart and everything it was expanding. But how do you, you know, do you tell your friends, well, yeah, my best friend and I stayed up all night reading excerpts from the collected poems of Dylan Thomas, and it's so beautiful. This is great poet from Wales. You, I could have done it, but I was afraid because I just thought I didn't want to hear They'd laugh at you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So, Ray, you're getting all the intricate stuff here today. No, I love this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So Uh, that's... um, Are we in the mid-60s? I don't know where we are time-wise. Where are we? Sorry, I am leaping. Not this later. We'd be in the mid Now, you're talking about So you're in Vermont, yeah. This is mid-70s. Sorry, it's off. So 75 to 78. And you graduated high school from in D.C. from... um, Western High School, which, which is now Duke Ellington School of the Arts. Right, and your friends stayed, I guess what I'm seeing here is these friends, you know, you're off at school, you know, quote-unquote, finding yourself as one right. does and uh, making new, <laughs> or, or not, not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, making friends for sure, mm-hmm. finding those things that you like, and then coming back to D.C. over the summer break, and I guess right. some of your friends are, are still here, and just sort of keeping a couple Or going couple, to school in the area, you know, oh, okay. Howard. Yeah, um, a couple. Yeah. One of my best friends went to, um, oh gosh, what is it, Hampton in Virginia. So I mean, generally not not thirteen hours away, and mm-hmm. and certainly not. A lot of people kept thinking, where is Vermont? No one really kind of knew where it was. It's just and, not here. And they'd say, well, it's above Boston, and I'd say, yeah, because I was thinking there was a book by Robert Frost called North of Boston. So it's a way the heck up. And they'd say, oh, you're going to freeze. You're going to freeze. It was cold, you know, but it was, um, like I said, it was, it was a great experience. I was really crestfallen when I graduated, which I guess is ironic. You know, I was the first person on my father's side of the family to graduate from college. And I remember my relatives talking about how proud they were of me. And I'm, I was and I'm thankful and grateful, but I was so despondent because I thought, you know, you're never gonna find like this band of gypsies again. And is which it, is where DC Space came in later. But at the time you didn't know it. You're in your early twenties, well, I'm thinking. I mean I could say that too. Like I didn't want undergrad to end. I really yeah, liked yeah. it. I didn't want to move out. I didn't want to go to that next phase. I really yes. held on kicking and screaming. I was crushed like ice. I mean I was just a mess. Like what am I gonna do? But I had to take you know, there's all this, you're getting accolades, and it's wonderful, your life is continuing, I'm thinking, uh, you think it's over. I mean, some of that is slightly post-adolescent, you know, angst or something, but I just didn't, if you had told me then, you know, what my life has become, pluses and minuses, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed it, Mm -hmm. you know, but uh, I'm, I'm mostly very, very grateful for um, this path, as, as my yoga teacher likes to say. And I'm grateful you're here to share it with me. Thank you. Uh, Ruben, and then so we, you're back in D.C., and right. the love of the arts is still strong and, and thriving. Uh, what are your notions in terms of what you're going to do? Oh, man. I was lost. I was so lost. And, um, you know, it's funny thinking about that we're on the radio now when I you know I sub as you know sometimes on WPFW here's a Pacifica station and 
a couple of weeks ago I was on for somebody and they said, what, this is a great set. Where'd you get this playlist? One thing I did to keep myself going spiritually was I would create playlists pretending I was still on the radio while I was looking for a job. And you're pulling through your collection and going through my head. Oh, man. My head. You know, and I would, if I'm in the car going to an interview, I might, I'm pretending that I'm still on the air. It's like, you know, and we just concluded this set with Charles Mingus from the 1959 album Mingus Revisited. This is your, but it's like you're in love with somebody. Maybe there's a scent of perfume on your shirt and you're still trying to keep that alive. So that's what, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what I did eventually, though, to, to be less metaphorical and more concrete was I took a part-time job working at the Air and Space Museum uh, in the gift shop. And after my mother and I had these long conversations, she said, you should think about grad school. And I began pursuing a master's in library science degree at UDC. So that was like, it made me feel better. I didn't know where any of this would lead, but it was a step because otherwise I was just, um, I was stuck in place. And you knew you wanted something else? Uh, well, I or, needed something else. You know, yeah. I wasn't, I had these notions about maybe going back to Vermont, but then, you know, college is a cloistered environment and, and you know, the real world is slightly different, but it, it gave me, I just needed to make a step. You know, I just needed to go sideways or parallel or something. And school, school was a big help. And I did find that it was a good, to use this term again, kind of meshing of my love for books and knowledge and um, like a practical, hopefully like entryway into the world of work without bending me into something I wasn't. Yeah, it's something that uh, asks you to to drop those things that you love, I guess. Right, yeah, and I just couldn't, I wasn't going to drop writing, but um, it was, you know, it was a tough time. It was a tough time for me, tougher than I ever articulated to anyone. Yeah, and then... Um curator of the Duke Ellington collection at the Smithsonian comes after you get your graduate degree or when does yeah, that? that was so I get my degree and then I worked for two years as a children's librarian for DC Public oh nice okay uh, Anacostia oh I didn't know that which um, was another education because I thought and it's almost naive it's so naive to let people know this but you know if you so you know all about books of, if a young person comes to you after school and says I'm looking for a book about dinosaurs and you can show them where they are but what I was and this was there was a deliberate attempt to place you know it's like you have a black male figure in this term bothers me but like an underserved community so you're a librarian but you're like father figure you're um, sort of disciplinarian I was all these things I'm not sure I was able to fully honor like because, a de facto role model or oh something? oh no you are you are and and like for me the younger students especially the young women were happy because one day i came in and there were like four or five young women at the table and they're whispering about something and i come over sort of jokingly and saying what are you all whispering about and then i overheard one say 
he's my father. No, he's my father. He's, and you realize, you know, a lot of uh, these great souls were not, for whatever reason, the, the male was not in the house. So they were talking about me. And I thought, wow. And that's when it registered, well, you're not just a guy who knows something about books. You have um, a greater, really even emotional role in a community, which, um, excuse me, I'm getting emotional thinking about this. No, because, But um, the teenage boys gave me grief because, you know, I had a job which they considered, like, men don't do this. Men are not librarians. So you're kind of like the old stuff, silly putty. You're pulled this way and this way. And um, it's funny, I ran into a woman in the grocery store not long ago who said, do you remember me? And she said, I said, you look for me? She said, yeah, I used to come to the library every day. She was so supportive and I knew, and we both kind of got teary because I said, man, you know, that was... Her dad had died recently, and she says, you are always there. I could, because she'd sit and talk to me, and she's, can I help you reshelve books? So, so what, what I learned was, um, like there's an essay by the poet Amiri Baraka, hunting is not just those heads on the wall. So you're not just, as I said before, the dispenser of information about periodicals or what have you. You're, you're part of a greater um, interaction with humanity. Mm-hmm. And hindsight, I, I, I get it now. But uh, so that's what, anyway, I was librarian for two years. The Smithsonian job opened up. A friend sent me this, you know, this tells you about the time period. Are we back in the early 80s? She sent me, this is 1989, early oh. 89. Oh, okay. But it was a hard copy of a job announcement. She says, Smithsonian is looking for, you know, someone to work with the Duke Ellington collection. I think you could you could do this job. Well, I didn't think I had a snowball's chance in Hades, but I knew my friend would nudge me if, if I didn't apply for it. So I applied for it thinking, yeah, 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 whatever. And, you know, a short story is that I got a phone call for an interview, and I was hired, and I was there for 20 years. Jeez. Yeah. Um, the Duke Ellington collection. Right. Proving, I said this to someone last night, when you think you have your life scripted and you say, okay, life, it's going to be this, 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 and this. And you hear this rumble, and you think it's thunder. It's the universe laughing at you. Like, uh, no, I don't think so. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, the only transition and segue I can think of here is Duke Ellington, um, the music to as I said, Ringo Starr, uh, the poem uh, Second Grade Second on grade. page 8 from Scattered Clouds, New right. and Selected Poems <laughs> by Reuben Jackson. Yeah, my second favorite Beatle. It's like Ringo. George Harrison's my favorite composer. Yeah. Second Grade. Tried to get my hair to flop like Ringo so I could impress Sheila Watkins, whose inability to ship kisses to England led her to announce that she'd settle for reasonable facsimile, provided he could also play drums. I owned a snare and cymbal, four adjustable rings. Each day I would try forcing my locks into action. The tight curls were forever sleeping. I asked my barber what he could do about this. 
Aren't you proud of being Negro, he asked. Sure, I answered. But what if Sheila doesn't change her mind? Yeah. Right. Um, oh, gosh. Can we talk about the book? We're kind of coming near the end yeah. here. I know a, a, a large or a portion of this book was previously published. Fingering the Keys, right. And then this is the new edition with that content with new stuff. And, and new poems, right, yeah. Um, your Fingering the Keys came out in 1990. And um, last, this is 2020. So 2018, uh, Alan Squire Publishers, which is located in Bethesda, approached me and said, you know, we'd like to reissue Fingering the Keys with some newer poems. Are you interested? Because they had been out of print. Yeah, like forever. And it's been 28 years, <laughs> 29 years now. And um, I said, well, sure. And, you know, the, of course, then the, the work is trying to find more recent representative samplings of um, post-fingering work, you know, um, which was, I think it's as representative as it could be. I feel books are kind of like all-star teams. Like you put somebody at shortstop, and then later you think, oh, darn, I forgot about so-and-so. But um, to quote my father, you know, I, I did the best I could. He'd always say, son, do the best you can, so, which, you know, again, sounds simple, but we know from life. Ha, ha, ha. And I, I – uh... We have a little more to talk about, but I don't know if you... There's one you wanted to read, but there's one I really like on page 92 called My Mother and the Afterlife. Oh, gosh, yeah. I feel like I'm like, hitting good. the jukebox here. I appreciate asking, it. I appreciate but it. But if there's something else you wanted to read after that... I'd, no, that's perfect, because then I get the cover. And this is one of the more selected from the newer yeah, group. Right, post right, yeah, right. Post-1990, I guess. Oh, yeah. This is <laughs> <laughs> My Mother and the Afterlife. It's 1970 again. My mother is shaking her head at the sight of my clothing. She never abandoned her dream of a world without denim. Now there's no escaping my critique. You can't have coffee with God looking like that. She rolls her eyes at Abby Hoffman and at Bill, who owned the head shop near our house. Death has restored her mind. Now she's talking curfew. My brother laughs behind a cloud. Yeah, I really like that one. Really. Thank you. I mean, I think with that, it's it's kind of an inferred elegy too, because well, you you know you can get like my mom had Alzheimer's, so death restored her mind, and you know my brother's there, so it, like my family is gone. But it's um, my mother was that way. She was, I think she was radical in a way people aren't anymore. I often said about her, she wanted a revolution, but she thought you should look good while you were doing it. You know, <laughs> and so like, like today she'd say, "Son, you were on the radio. Why did you wear those slightly faded jeans?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Don Hathaway sweatshirt. Mom, I'm 64. And the, son, um, doesn't matter. And her um, revolution. She was uh, pretty private about that then, and not really outwardly. Yes um, and no. I mean, she was. She also kept us, my brother and I wanted to go out and play ball one day, and, and she said, no, you have to learn which forks to use for, for this formal dinner where, you know, and, and she loved, like she loved Michael Jackson and all that, but she also loved Chopin, and so she was oh, the combo platter, you know, proof that, like, 
as she once said, being black is not a two-lane highway. She grew up in a middle-class family, and um, my father, like my grandfather on my father's side was sharecropper. My father loved, like, muddy waters, that kind of gut-bucket blues stuff, and my mother would say, your father's in the basement playing muddy waters and all. She didn't hate it, but they were kind of from opposite ends of the table, so to speak. But his pragmatism, I think, allowed a lot of stuff to happen. And I think his pragmatism was also why he was so worried about me, you know, kind of daydreaming that I would one day be, you know, a poet or... <laughs> Something not practical. Thanks, thanks Mom. No, I, I love... I miss them. I miss them. But I'm more like them every day. So I guess that's the... Like the consolation prize, um, and my I guess my last question here. We're running out of time. We could talk for hours. I know. Uh, maybe we'll do a part two. But I it used to be on Facebook, and some of your Facebook updates would be about you riding the metro and the conversations you had. Oh with my people. gosh! Yeah. Can yeah. you talk about that process a little bit? Because it sounds really active and rich and that kind of stuff. It's. I believe that um, poetry is everywhere. And the the things I would post on Facebook had to do with just these these vignettes, which either you know struck me as tragic or funny. It's like the things we hear every day, um, and you might take them for granted. But I just I don't know. It's funny. I, and plus, I run into old like grade school friends on the train. There's something uh, I don't say magical, but it's incredible that these things happen. Like I saw two days ago. I saw a guy from second grade, and I hadn't seen him in years. And, like, your brain will, he comes in, he gets on the train at, like, gallery place. And I said, God, Gregory, Gregory, how are you? He says, I haven't seen I said, yeah, third row, second seat, so-and-so sat on this side. And you think, you've been keeping this, it's like the Johnson administration. But it's a way of, the city's changed so much, and I think for me, it's, it's kind of like an anchor. You get like an anchor and you talk for three stops and they'll tell you who's here, who's there, who's passed. Boom, they get off the train. And um, I don't know, I think of like Jack Kerouac said, uh, like, go moan for man and of this world report you well and truly. And what I try to do with these things is report the world as I've seen it and continue to see it uh, well and truly. Yeah. I, that's what I get. Well, thanks. We've run out of time here. This is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, scattered clouds is at politics and prose, I think, throughout the city, maybe other places. This is something I would never say. Wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. And, I did say it. And okay. fine people are hanging out. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, so thanks again. This has been an episode of All Things Local on Full Service Radio. We brought, we're broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Please visit dclibrary.org to learn more about the library services and programs. Talk to us online at DCPL on Twitter and at DC Public Library on Instagram. Listen and download the show wherever you listen to your podcasts by searching for Full Service Radio. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on MixCloud.com slash Full Service Radio. 
Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.